Okay, fantastic. Let's get started. So hi everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining and welcome to today's webinar on employee engagement in the post-COVID world brought to you by Staff Treat. I'm very excited to be here today and um, with people experts um, discussing people management topics um, in the current climate. So I'm very pleased to be introducing three fantastic experts who will be speakers in our, on our panel. Um, we've got Rebecca Bull, Maya Adler and Matthew Phelan, who will be bringing their valuable insights and expertise. And we're really looking forward to just having a great discussion and a great conversation with you. So we encourage all of you to ask a question at any stage throughout the webinar. Um, you can use Zoom's Q&A feature. We'll get the questions directly and we'll try to do the best to answer them within the time frame. If we run out of time, you can always email the Staff Treats team at team at stafftreats.com. Um, but I'll save some time at the end to make sure we get a chance to go through some of your questions. Um, so without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce our three panel speakers. Um, guys, it would be great if you introduce yourselves, uh, your role and your current focus. Um, so shall we start with Rebecca? Thanks, Eva. Um, good evening, everybody. And it's really great to be here today. Um, so my name is Rebecca Bull and um, I started my business my HR hub uh, just over five years ago now and we focus specifically on startups uh, small and fast growth organizations across the UK and the secondary business my HR club uh, was launched last May uh, so a year last May and that's predominantly uh, offering a um, HR subscription based online low-cost HR service and staff treats is one of our clients and partners and um, <clears throat> we're delighted to be um, asked to come along this evening. Thanks so much Rebecca. Um, should we go with Maya? Hi everyone, Maya Adler here. Um, I am currently uh, leading uh, the organisation Design COE at Novartis. Um, I just joined a few months ago. Um, before that I was running my own business um, in the kind of organisational transformation consulting space. Um, before that I used to lead the organisation design practice at KPMG. So very focused on kind of people and change and large transformations involving kind of all the levers that HR uh, has to drive engagement, culture, structure, reward, etc. Um, uh, now very focused on uh, professionally um, really kind of building capability um, at Novartis um, and driving their large cultural agenda, um, which is exciting and, and has been driven uh, faster by COVID. So really excited to be here and, and talking to you. Thanks so much, Maria. And finally, Matt. Hey, everyone. Um, so yeah, I've got the biggest made up job title of all time, which is um, <laughs> Head of Global Happiness. Um, but that's to do with my role. Um, we, the Happiness Index collects data um, from employees in 86 countries across the world. Um, so my air miles are down, so I feel good about that at the moment. Um, and yes, I suppose my absolute obsession is, is the association between how people feel at work and it actually really commercially, how that impacts the performance of the business. So um, it's just reams and reams of data now that shows that happier employees perform better at work and that flows through into the financial performance of the business. So um, I'm, I'm the geek on the panel. I've got data on how, how COVID has made people feel. Um, and I'll just try and chuck some stuff in here and there. And if anyone's got any questions, just pop it in the um, little Q&A. I don't mind asking, answering data stuff. 
Thanks so much, Matt. And I'm Eva Evangelou. I'm Customer Success Director at Onalytica. I'm a people manager myself, and I'm very passionate about empowering employees to reach their full potential, but also help drive our businesses forward. Um, and obviously, this has been a very interesting and very challenging time um, for a lot of businesses. Um, so I'm really keen to start the conversation with um, just how businesses, um, what we've learned um, from COVID and what are businesses doing to improve. Um, so I'm going to pose the first question to the self-proclaimed geek of the group. Um, so Matt, can you hit us with some stats around what we've learned um, from how employees are feeling, what have businesses done to improve and what we have learned? Yeah, so um, I'll share uh, what we've learned from macro and also what, what I've learned individually because I'm always trying to learn more about my own subject. Um, so the first thing is, there's no getting away from it. Um, employee happiness across the globe consistently dropped by about 20%, which is, is huge, okay? I've been looking at the data for six or seven years. You just don't get that. Um, and because we know that um, happiness impacts performance, that will have had impacted performance. Um, that has bounced up in the last month, so it has gone up again. Um, and the second thing that we've seen, which I think for everyone listening, it's a really important point, um, is we've seen something called an emotional deficit. Um, because um, we can't see each other as much, and, and maybe this event, would we would have all been in somewhere um, in London or something, and then having some wine and stuff afterwards. And when we can't see our friends and family, and there's an emotional deficit and companies have two options. They can either help to fill that emotional deficit or not. Um, and that's everyone listening is totally up to you what you do. But I can tell that if you help to fill it, um, your employees will happier, you perform better and you'll do better financially. If you don't, um, you won't get that. Um, so they're probably the, the, the two things from the data. The thing that I've learned from them the most is to never see um, happiness as an objective. Because um, when we were talking about um, this, this, this session earlier, we were talking about like what could also be the positive message that we could leave people. Um, and my own learning from it is not to see um, happiness, high happiness as good and low happiness as bad. They are just our emotions, okay? Um, and the more you understand them, the more you can do something about it. Um, so I used to, used to, even internally, we used to say, oh, we've got to have employee happiness at 8 out of 10. And I, I've learned from, from my own neuroscience um, investigations that actually that's, that's just a totally wrong way of looking about it. It's totally okay to not feel cool because of what's been happening around the world. But what we can do as companies is understand what's making people unhappy and where we can help, let's help. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Matt. And Rebecca, from your experience, how have you seen uh, businesses improve and what do you think that they've learned um, from this situation? Yeah, I think, gosh, so many things. Um, I think initially um, the things they learned were perhaps how disconnected they were with their own, from their employees in terms of everything, kind of maybe the basics of emergency contact details and um, can they work from home and um, what other roles can they potentially do as part of that core team that remained in the workplace when everyone else was furloughed. Um, I think everyone has got closer in terms of the communication and the um, it's like um, Matt was just saying the emotional deficit so the um, you know emotional intelligence has increased I would say through with my clients as a result of them putting the welfare first and I would say you know we're very lucky with the clients that we work for uh, who are very employee centric and quite paternalistic so um, it's been quite natural for them to care 
um, first and foremost for the welfare of the teams as opposed to the profits that became almost we're just going to have to forget about that for the moment um, and that, would dis that was displayed in many different ways where factories were closed um, on the basis that they could continue to run and create income but the MD who's very um, you know very employee centric and uh, caring if you like decided that was just not um, something he wanted to risk. So from a health and safety perspective, this was prior to any of the guidelines coming out about COVID safe workplaces. He decided to um, make that choice and make that call to actually close the warehouse and the manufacturing operations, um, which impacted on the uh, financial um, side of the business. But as a result of that, all the staff were allowed to go home and they felt quite safe. So I think it's built loyalty and it's really shown true leaders um, those leaders that really are caring for their employees um, stand out quite naturally I think through the process um, I think from an organization point of view um, several conversations I've been having for probably quite a few years with clients in terms of restructuring or perhaps looking at um, roles and um, looking at is that role really the right person is that is do you actually really need that role or do we need to look at something else and i think certainly small businesses because they're so so busy all the time um, they don't uh, often tend to get time to actually stand back and reflect and work um, on the business they're in the business all the time and so what covid did was naturally um, help them organize and restructure very quickly and it was very obvious before you even start to look at redundancy matrices who where they're going to be the first people that would potentially exit the business mm -hmm. because these were the people that potentially, you know, if we are talking quite pragmatically, um, that should have uh, left the business probably a year or so before. So I think it really pushed forward the reorganization um, <clears throat> and really um, brought, brought into, um, you know, kind of very clear daylight that conflict or difficult conversations never kind of go away they just get put to the side until a pandemic brings everything to light and and i think that's what happened where you know it helped them really kind of focus on the core business and really uh, look at the um agileness i guess and how lean they were versus income and try and do something correlation versus the um, structure and wherever there was was um additional resources and um, people that they probably just couldn't carry, um, those tough calls were made. So they've made tough calls, really tough calls, and it's been really um, challenging to see them go through such a difficult time, to be honest. It's been quite um, quite challenging, um, and but they've been amazing, I can honestly say. I'm just so proud of all of them. They've done an incredible job. Yeah, and they definitely weren't ready to make some of those changes. Um, and a lot of the restructuring that we've spoken about. So Maya, how, how have you seen this and how do you feel businesses have restructured? Were they ready? How did they go about this? Yeah, um, kind of three, three points I was thinking about as everyone was talking. Um, the first thing we found was that employees, um, there was a lot of panic when COVID hit. And the first thing that um, people were scared about was their health 
um, uh, you know, stocking up on toilet paper um, uh, and then their wealth, right? And what do I mean by that? Um, their job security. Um, so Novartis is privileged um, that uh, it's a successful business, it has cash reserves, and it was able to promise everybody that, you know, we wouldn't be making any redundancy as a result of COVID. And I think that um, when, when, when soon after we were able to announce that, it really started people to think about, well, how do we use this opportunity, this moment of panic actually as a, an opportunity to rethink the way we work? And one of the things that really came out was that, um, you know, we, we, I'm sure all of us in our, our jobs have, you know, project plans and Gantt charts and our plans for the year. Um, and there's a full sense of security in all of that, right? Um, and this concept of agile and agility came out really strongly as how do you um, create something that isn't set in stone, that gets you, that's iterative and allows you to get to an outcome, but also importantly, kind of tenets from agile is how do you break work down into manageable pieces so rather than just coming in every day doing your job um, when you're remote um, you kind of as a manager so you're managing one person you're managing 300 people you're managing your own time right with nobody looking over your shoulder you kind of need to learn to break work down into chunks and and kind of manage it in small pieces and make sure that you're getting the outcomes you need and connecting uh, much more rapidly maybe in more formal ways so we were kind of learning our way through all of that um, I think kind of linking back to employee happiness and engagement, what really happened was that um, uh, well, there's a great book, Elena Baton wrote a book called The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. Um, and in that, he talks about what makes a good job. And he defined a good job as having complexity, autonomy, and meaning, right? Um, autonomy is you have autonomy, you make decisions. Complexity is a com little bit more complicated because what's complex on day one isn't complex on day 90. So that's something that has to grow with you in your role. Meaning's a really interesting one. It's not meaning as in I save the world, right? It's meaning that I see the impact of my work. Um, and sometimes in a job, it's hard to see that, right? But, but in a way, when you're working remotely and you're starting to wake, break work down into packages so that you can manage and connect in, in a collaborative way rather than everybody just um, uh, connecting informally, people started to see like the output that they were creating like on a daily weekly basis right because you're kind of sending things around you're helping other people understand and we really saw an uptick of people saying actually i can kind of see what i'm doing right i see how i fill my day and i'm not wasting my time getting coffees necessarily but i use the other parts of my day really um in a valuable way as well either with my family or with friends or um spending time on my own so it was a really interesting shift but the real thing was how do we give people that sense of safety and then allow them to kind of think about what that means for them um, to think about it positively. Yeah, and I think so that's definitely one of the benefits that came from breaking down some of your time. There has been more time with family. I guess what are some of the challenges that came with that and, and what are some of the what are some of the challenges and what are some of the benefits um, as both uh, an individual contributor and as a manager that we've seen? And this is an, an open question to the panel. Yeah. Can I, I think either, uh, right? No, you go, man. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, at, at Novartis, uh, one of the reasons I joined Novartis uh, recently was uh, I was very enamored with and believed in their cultural journey, which is to be every employee in the whole organization to be inspired, curious, and unbossed. Um, and it kind of means what it says on the tin, you know, we want people to be inspired by their work every day. We want them to be curious and learning on a constant basis. 
um, you know, we fund 100 hours a year per person for training, um, which is amazing. But the Unboss thing is really interesting, right? It's a 150-year-old it's company, very hierarchical, old school. And we're kind of working through on a personal level with leaders and, and with the organization what it means to be unbossed. And what we found with the pandemic and remote working is it, it's really accelerated that, right? Because you simply cannot be um, a micromanager in the same way when people are working from home because you don't have access, right? They're not in the office. You're not over their shoulder. You can't check. They can't be there all the time and they can switch off. They can not turn up to a call. Right. And so, um, you know, autonomy was kind of, was, was something that, that, that dropped out of it. I mean, a lot of managers, I think, found themselves scrabbling around with kind of what am I doing now, right? <laughs> I have a call on today with my team and then, and then what, right? Well, actually there's loads of value in that role and what you could do to facilitate and help and be a servant leader. So, so I think it, it's been a real, I don't know if we've, I don't know if we've grabbed the value that that's created yet, but that kind of unbossed journey has been accelerated massively by, um, by just the remote working driving a different cultural mindset of, of what it means to be um, an employee and a manager, right? Sorry, Matt. I, I was it, such a good, such a good point. I just I was just la I was laughing because I was imagining you writing a book saying that COVID nineteen is the death of the micromanager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was just again. I'm just going to play the data um, the update for everyone, which is the other weird thing that we're seeing that I've never seen before is that we we always rank like what's coming up and what's making people happy and what's making people unhappy. And for the first time ever, um, the thing, there's one thing that's in the top two of unhappy and happy. Um, and I love it when I see new bits of data that I've never seen before. I'm like, what is going on here? Um, and the word that's in there is the, is the F word, um, which is family. Um, and it's so interesting because if, if I take myself as an example, I've got more time with my family and that's brilliant. I've got young children and so on and so on. But it's also incredibly stressful. <laughs> like when, like, I'll show everyone here because um, I'll just show you my office. Because Mayor was like, "Oh, you've got a nice background there, Matt." But this is the actual reality. I don't know if you can see. Look, I mean, look at this. This is my office. Where? Look at that. <laughs> and that's why I'm here because I'll be in the middle of these calls, maybe speaking to the CEO of Unilever or something, and then I suddenly get a pitch invasion. Um. And, and it's showing up in the data, which is, um, it's, there's, there's both elements of that. And it's, I think we're, it's the end of, the, uh, uh, if we're playing Room 101 and, and Mayor's put micromanagement in there, I think the, the, it's also the death of, um, I, I hate the phrase um, work-life balance because there's just life. You only have one life. Um, and it's about having a good, healthy, happy life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but now it's a new world. We're working out how these things work together and, and, and people are starting to understand it a bit more. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd share that on the data and my uh, messy uh, office. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing the office. I think that's definitely been a challenge for us as well because for some parents with very young children who um, don't have the chance or who are both working, both parents are working and they have to both kind of be working and doing childcare at the same time. It's, I mean, it's a full-time job. Um, so that's been really, really difficult. So I wonder what the future opportunities of working in an office will be. Like, will parents, for example, as one group, 
choose to be working in the office or choose to be working remotely? How do you see that? Oh, I think it's, it's very individual, isn't it? And um, I think it's more the parents that want to come back to work <laughs> in the office. Um, but I think it's, it's all dependent on how you're set up, I think, at home. Um, I would say the clients, the employees that we've been supporting throughout, um, the ones that I found it the most difficult, I think, where both mum um, and dad have been working from home and they've got children to homeschool as well. And that is just such, it's like a perfect storm, isn't it? I mean, that is just so hard, so much hard work. And I think those people that we've been close contact with, those that have been, have got toddlers at home, for example, are the ones that are quite keen to get back into a routine and back into the, into the office to feel like they're at work because it's almost like they need that escapism from home to come back to home afterwards. Um, and I think there are others, uh, we were chatting about this earlier in the week, um, who actually really enjoy being at home, um, who have probably would never have got home working through a flexible working request. And actually through COVID, everybody's, the, the business case is there. You know, if they're performing well, it, we've always said it's going to be really challenging to put a flexible working request in and reject that on the basis that it doesn't work if it has worked for the last four to five months. Um, and but uh, but we know some clients of ours are keen to create that office vibe again and bring people back together um, and going through um, I guess the statutory flexible working request and the the eight uh, criteria seven or eight criteria that are there is really difficult to actually kind of hang building a culture or creating improved teamwork around one of the uh, reasons to um legally kind of reject a request to work flexibly or work from home and so i think employees need to be really careful how they do that um, certainly for those that are quite introverts and don't enjoy socializing and don't enjoy going to the pub after work and actually just want to get on with their jobs they're the ones we are seeing are the ones that want to stay at home and you know conversations with the businesses are will actually it's likely to get worse or become more isolated. We actually need to bring that person back into the workplace. And I think, well, actually that's, that's a personal choice. You know, I don't think that will wash at all. So I think there's so many different variables, isn't there, of um, who wants to stay at home, who wants to actually carry on working. And, and obviously as we're seeing now is potentially the start of a second peak. Um, how do we actually kind of manage the next phase through with employers to make sure everyone is safe? Um, um, I would probably say out of our clients, the majority have suggested that everyone stays at home and works from home for as long as they can if they're not needed on site. Um, but then we have got manufacturing organisations and restaurants where they have to be clearly be there um, and then just sort of managing um, COVID secure workplaces as best as best as they can which is uh, not without its challenges is it really yeah I'm, I'm wondering Matt, if we have any data around how working remotely has impacted productivity because we're kind of discussing whether it's productivity working in the office versus overall flexibility so are you able to work remotely or work within the office so what what data do we have behind that um the data we've got at the moment um across the board is that about 50% of employees uh, um, 
are happier when they're at home and 50% are happier in the office. Okay. So it's, a real, it's, a real, it's a real Brexit scenario. <laughs> um, but, but, but what we do know, um, if you move forward, you've you got multiple choices there, haven't you? You could tell everyone to go back to the office or you could tell everyone to work from home. Whatever way you go there, you're going to um, upset 50% of the workforce. Now, what we do know is that happiness um, and engagement leads through to productivity. Um, and that is part of the path. I simplified it by saying it's um, happiness and engagement through to, to a bigger sales. But in that is creativity, productivity and stuff like that. So um, what uh, I think what it's about is about understanding that data and try and, and we've used the word flexible a lot and trying to create an, an environment because one of the other things in the data is around how um, about if you can be yourself at work, you'll perform better. And, and, and that's as you start to get into it. And an example someone gave to me, um, they, and this is the, the, the most extreme example that I've heard is that in a meeting today, they were saying um, they used to work with someone um, who um, used to like to dress as a cat. So they used to come to the office dressed as a cat. Um, and the first time you see it, you're a bit like, I've never seen someone at work dressed as a cat, but the second time you're cool with it. Um, but that's part of their, their psyche. So I think there's just a massive opportunity here for all companies to just get rid of all their historical thinking behind what they thought was a good work and, and, and start from a cultural basis and go, like, what is the best culture that we can create and, and work back from that rather than thinking, is it binary? Is it the office? Is it not? Because um, I think a lot of people will, will end up in, in the middle. So it's one of these things you can't please everyone but i think you can create a culture that allows people to be themselves and work in different ways like it's about eight years ago i put a question to our office um and it was about one of the best things that we've ever done because it takes away a level of pressure now in a new world i start to think about how how would you do that because that, that was very popular at the time but now you're probably not going to want to bring your kid on the tube um so i just think it's a chance to reset and think like what's the best way we we were just hiring for a developer and we probably would have six months ago hired them in London. Um, but it looks like we're going to hire them in Singapore because we just opened up to the world. We just said, right, who's what developers are out there. Um, and we don't care as long as they produce their work. Yeah. And I think that's a great enabler, isn't it? Is the actual global um, labor market that has opened up as a result of this. Whereas, you know, quite a few MDs are quite anti working from home and it's the trust issue and et cetera, et cetera. And everybody will want to work from home if you do, et cetera. So I think the fact is now employers have seen that it completely unlocks a different labour pool and uh, really opens up fantastic opportunities that kind of work against COVID and what the, all the you know devastation it's caused actually starts to enable and, and open up more opportunities for so many businesses. I was, I was just going to say, um, you know, I think there are positives. I think um, there are also negatives that we're kind of working through. Um, so if I think about two of the things that, that I've kind of found in previous work. So one is um, I, I did a piece of work with Philip Morris, which is the largest tobacco company uh, in the world. Uh, they were a previous client of mine. Um, by 2050, they have um, promised the world publicly that they won't sell cigarettes anymore. 
which is which is crazy for a 180 year old business that sells tobacco um, and, and quite a purpose. Now, the, the way in which they're going to get to not selling cigarettes is, is swapping revenue streams to a whole load of things. So would you believe it? They're looking at um, going into pharma, um, looking at, for example, painkiller delivery through inhalation. So they've got all the science on smoking and they're looking at how they can change that to better things, which is, you know, I'm sure partially driven by the, um, you know, the number of people smoking in the world reducing at a rapid rate, but also through kind of trying to drive a different purpose. Um, in looking at how to drive innovation, um, what they found was fundamentally that collaboration and inclusion of ideas drove innovation. Similar to we talk about happiness driving kind of revenue. Those two things drive innovation in an organization. Similarly, when looking at um, this cultural journey uh, for Novartis, you know, you can't swing a cat innovators without meeting somebody who has like a triple phd in science from um harvard or mit right quite literally um on a daily basis i speak to people like that and so they're not going to go for something unless it's backed by data and so they did a lot of data work to look at what would drive um right outcomes what they found was that productivity you know the strongest correlation with productivity is driven by bonds of friendship um so when we talk about kind of collaboration, inclusion of ideas, bonds of friendship, these are things that drive value for businesses. Um, and as human beings, we're not used to doing any of those three things over Zoom, right? Or over Microsoft Teams. And that's where I think um, we have a negative, right? There's a deficit today. Um, and the reason why I said there's a deficit today is we've basically transposed all of our working practices and all of our social practices onto Zoom, right? Or onto Microsoft Teams. Um, and so I am sure many others basically sit in meetings from 8am to 8pm um, with no break and no respite. Um, so the question is, for those really important things, right, productivity for some reason, never mind anybody who's kind of trying to do anything sexy and new, productivity is critical for everyone. How do you drive bonds of friendship in a remote environment? Um, and then second of all, for collaboration, inclusion of ideas, how do you actually use it to your advantage? Um, you know, a very simple example, in a, in a managed uh, Zoom meeting, um, you reduce things like hierarchy, grade, etc., because you're able to give people a turn to speak, right? Because and it feels much more natural when you're remote to give people turns to speak. Whereas when you're in a meeting room, everyone's kind of just talking, biggest personalities, whatever it is. Um, so I suppose again, we don't have the answer because this is early on. But it, this this experience of working remotely i don't want to call it working remotely because it assumes that there's a center from which we are remote but distributed working is here to stay then um we are need to learn quickly how to navigate um uh the future right and still get collaboration still get bonds of friendship still get engagement um, and i don't mean engagement on the broad scale of a company i mean engagement between like personal and interpersonal relationships being built um, beyond um, and we you know we're doing a lot of games nights for example right and and actually technology is great for games um, so we're playing games with each other as a way to actually engage in something other than work whereas before we would have just kind of got drunk um, uh, now we are still drinking but also playing games online together so th there's the question is how do we change in this new world um without losing those things and i think you know netflix reed hastings has been in the news very recently saying this is impossible everybody needs to get back to the office i mean he's really talking about the things i've just described how do, he can't see how he can drive innovation or that productivity when everybody's so distributed and so his answer is bring everybody back i think that 
that's naive because I don't think that's going to be possible, right? So it's not about bring everybody back or everybody stay at home. It's about how, what is the future, right? Um, uh, I'd be super interested to hear Matt and, and Rebecca, your kind of views on that as well. Um, I think I, I always found just, I've obviously just been sticking to the data, but on the flexible stuff, just to give my own opinion, as an entrepreneur, I've always just found it crazy that people would hire people on a hundred thousand pound a year and then actually put them through a process about whether they could work from home. Like, I just think if you, if, 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 if you can't trust someone to work from home, then you shouldn't, they shouldn't be hired anyway. Like it's just, I find the whole concept absolutely crazy. But on Mayor's point, I think absolutely. And, and, and I think you're right on, um, on Netflix. Um, and I meet so many times you meet people from different industries. So I met someone who used to be CEO of Sainsbury's recently. Um, and the way that he was just talking about the consumer, it was like the consumer was wrong and he was right. And um, he was talking about companies like Amazon and Alibaba. And he was, he just made an off the cuff remark saying something like, um, he said to me, yeah, but um, consumers like to buy um, £10 notes for £5. Um, and, and what he was saying is that um, where Amazon and Alibaba are going into like um, selling actual food, he's effectively saying, yeah, well, they're, but they're not making any profit from it so that it's not going to work. But like in the Netflix example, he's just missed what the few, why Amazon are doing that. The reason Amazon, Amazon will make a loss on a business that, sells you food because they know everything about you at that point and they've collected data that is worth more than the entire UK supermarkets profits put together because you look in your shopping basket they know everything don't they if you're buying pregnancy tests if you are the vitamins you're taking so I think I, I think there's a lot of people that don't understand how powerful data is um, in that future and I think on, on to link in with Mayor's point I think there's so much data there that you can start to use to think about, right, how do we create this new future work? And I, like that, I didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't know if that was an actual a slogan they used, like unbossed. But that is, we see that so much in the data that, that really good people, that's just what they want. They just want to know what, the, what it is you want to achieve. And then they want to be left alone to do it and then go back um, when they need someone to help with. Um, so there's just so much data out there that's just being ignored. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, the situation has probably caused HR departments maybe to speak less to their employees. I think we were discussing this earlier in the week that they're almost don't, they already know what the answer is going to be. So they're trying not to speak so much to their employees. But in fact, what we've seen at Analytica and what I've heard with a lot of your businesses as well is that employees are responding a lot more than they ever were before to being surveyed. They want to get their um, they want to get the word out there. So this is a really important time to really be listening. Um, so what have you found with that? Um, I guess from, from where we are um, supporting clients. So um, health and wellbeing has always been like really important for, for me, sort of 20 years now. Um, we've been bringing in employee assistance programs. So this was in my previous previous corporate roles, um, employee assistance programs before they were a thing and before health and wellbeing was called health and wellbeing. It's just kind of caring for people. And, and um, I was always really, really passionate about that. And I was really lucky to find great organizations that shared 
that too um, and one of them being um, you know a very large organization that's very successful now and has just you know come back to Matt's point has just um, um, confirmed the incredible takings throughout the summer period so that we that's games workshop um, incidentally so um, I was in a great environment where that was really encouraged that we look after people uh, from a HR perspective but then just overall there was a great camaraderie uh, in the business um, and and so I guess that's that's completely stayed with me that's formed my uh, that's how HR looks after people full stop um, and sort of working through various organizations um, it's not always the same you know um, and I think what's what COVID has really done so the pandemic has really brought through those organizations that really genuinely um, want to invest in health and well-being um, initiatives so for example employee assistance programs where currently the wait list for direct counseling through the NHS in the UK is probably about six months could be longer now um, private counselling is probably up to £100 an hour, whereas if you have an employee assistance programme with face-to-face counselling, um, within a few days, a matter of days, you're in structured, um, previously was face-to-face, but it's now kind of obviously um, Zoom, um, you know, online um, face-to-face um, counselling, structured sessions. So we've seen um, a huge increase in um, those kind of services being used. Um, we've seen an increase also in um, managers needing support for themselves. Um, I'm not a huge, um, great fan of um, mental health um, practitioners in the workplace because I think certainly in small businesses, and this is probably, well, I know it's definitely different in large organisations because, uh, Mayor, what you were saying earlier about managers, what they're going to do now. Well, in small businesses, they don't have that luxury. They are doing the job, the day job, and looking after people. And then those small businesses where I guess the budget or the awareness isn't there, they are not affording great benefits like health and wellbeing um, employee assistance programs with counselling, which for me, uh, for, for many, many years has been probably the top number one benefit that employers should invest in. Um, because what we're doing, we're just actually pushing the problem back onto the line manager. So the line manager is very stressed. They're now managing remote teams. They're now figuring out how does it all come together? And then on top of that, um, they're the, the natural person, the signpost that that person goes to who is probably invariably very stressed or distressed, for example, and they have to try and solve that problem, which is a mental health issue. And I just find it just so unfair that um, line managers have yet another burden to deal with. And so our strategy is not working with mental health first aiders um, that's good from perhaps an awareness point of view in kind of understanding, you know, where people are at in the workplace. But those companies, which are most of our clients, to be fair, have access to a fantastic employee assistance program, um, which we've been partnering with for many years um, since, you know, various um, quite critical incidences in previous roles. We'd had suicides at work and um, they are a really strong partner of ours now. And I think it's taken the huge stress offline managers to be able to not have to deal with those conversations. So it's a direct referral or they phone directly, the employer does. But also we offer that employee assistance programme helpline for managers to kind of deal with all of those stresses and issues. And there have been many, you know, clients of ours have lost employees and um, employees have 
sadly passed away due to COVID. Um, we've had lots of employees whose family or extended friends have lost their lives due to uh, the um, due to the virus. And then there's been the knock-on effect of isolation and various other challenges, um, redundancies, um, and just life in, in general, you know, kind of it's the, the snowball, the knock-on effect of a redundancy, then it's financial well-being, and then it just goes on, doesn't it? Um, and so well-being for us has been a huge focus. Um, and we are just so glad the, um, the the clients that we support that have those benefits in place, which when, and there are some that don't, you know, to be fair, and we know when we have those calls and those conversations about absence management or sickness or stress. Um, I had a client yesterday call me to say that one of his employees um, was um, starting to self-harm and she's having suicidal thoughts, etc. And because they have the service, it's a direct referral straight into that. Um, and for those companies that don't have that, I just don't know how they're coping right now. You know, I don't know how they're dealing with that internally um, or a waiting list with the NHS, which is invariably perhaps long-term sickness coming through um, or, or, or worse, just, you know, continuous um, ongoing um, mental health issues where, you know, very sadly, because the GPs have long prior to COVID been in a situation where, they're not really getting into the skin of those issues and they are just prescribing um, antidepressants. And then the, the, a whole new challenge starts with um, kind of addiction uh, and so it goes on. So I think employees have every single scenario that HR can throw at them, they've had in the last six months. Um, and I think they've been incredibly resilient, you know, um, incredibly resilient. Yeah, uh, Rebecca, it's, re it's really interesting. I just, um, because you know, as you the, you know, the question about like HR connecting to employees more or less, and, and what you were talking about was kind of this boundary of hyper personal stuff kind of coming into the workplace. And and what what I was reflecting on is um, I don't want to go from kind of the topic you were talking about, which was quite somber in a way, uh, to to what really excites me about that. Right? Um, obviously, not the things you're talking about excite me because that would be wrong. But um, there's this real moment of opportunity to change the paradigm of the way in which we think about work and life right I always found two phrases really interesting work-life balance um you're alive when you're working right so so that doesn't make sense um and then you know um uh, uh the idea of um uh bringing your whole self to work again you, you're always your whole self right now you might hide parts of yourself but you are your whole self you're always coming to work these concepts kind of we, we seem to see work as something separate too right and it, it really comes from i think you know along with the nine to five this concept from henry ford which is everybody comes to the factory at a certain time and the only thing you do for those eight hours is x and then you leave right and then you have your life back right but until that you screw that nut on that bolt um, and don't stop every single time right we're living in hundreds of years in the past, like in modern day knowledge work. Now that might be the case for certain places, but um, the thing that you've been describing, Rebecca, is this opportunity to talk about human versus resources, right? HR, human resources. So like the concept of resources is basically where all the HR departments were. And like, you know, um, the Ulrich model of HR, of HR business partners and COEs and shared services and operations, like all of that's being blown up. Why is it being blown up? Because the function of HR is going, what is our 
purpose here, right? Do we have a purpose to play in fundamentally changing the way in which we interact with employees, fundamentally changing the way we kind of um, uh, work on culture and inclusion and interaction and well-being? I mean, you know, the concept of well-being has gone from are you okay at work to um, how are you going to um, support your children and your wife whilst trying to do your job? Right. The boundary between life and work has disappeared. I mean, myself, you know, when, when we were in the thick of lockdown, I was doing shift work with my wife and we were both working till all hours of every day to get the work done around the shift work of looking after the children. Um, you know, the concept of, of well-being and benefits changes. Right. So KPMG, my old employer, they're looking at kind of selling a lot of their offices. You know, I'm sure that the CFO is thinking, oh, saving. Right. But if I was the HRD, I'd be thinking, well, wait a second, if I'm not going to pay for an office for Maya, do I actually start to offer benefits around childcare, right? Um, and how do I create hyper-localized packages? So like that for me really is exciting, right? Because um, there is a swell of um, reality that forces us to change our model in the way in which, right? So the personnel side of, or the resources side, there's this opportunity for it to take a back seat. And I think that like, everybody in HR, like this has been in the psyche for the last two decades, right? This is the opportunity to strike while the iron's hot, which is to say, okay, all of that stuff, great, really important, basic stuff that needs to be done. But what does it really mean for the future of, of what we do, right? A staff treat um, of a 50, I say that because, you know, we're here um, invited by staff treats, a staff treat of a 50 pound Amazon voucher, great um, uh, pre-lockdown, what kind of staff treats would really matter to people now in lockdown? And by the way, how personalized can you be based on your workforce? Because every single member of that workforce needs something different, right? If I'm like a, um, if I'm a university, if I'm a, just come out of uh, university, I'm renting a single room in a house where I'm worried about, which I know people are in, worried about getting COVID from my housemates because they don't respect the rules and I'm working for your company, what do I need versus a parent of four kids who's trying to homeschool, toddlers, you know, husband's just lost the job, whatever it is, right? And I think there's, so I think there's this element of being able to fundamentally change the model um, and think about a new way of working. Uh, and I really don't want to say the new normal um, because I don't think we're anywhere near understanding what normal is any anytime soon, but it is new. And HR's role in that is going to be only larger rather than smaller, right? So I, I kind of think about, you know, the best HR functions in the world before this pandemic were thinking this way anyway. In every other company, HR was taking more and more of a backseat. It's like the CFO looks at the cost base of a business and goes, oh, yeah, let's cut HR's budget by 50% this year, right? And then they have this whole little tussle. Not saying that to sales. Now HR has this position to say, well, actually, we're one of the most important functions in, in the business, right? And how are we going to play in that space, I think, is, is a very exciting um, moment, even though it comes out of a lot of kind of um, difficulty and pain, right? Um, but yeah, sorry, I just wanted to say because I, I, no, I think I think it's such a, you make such a good point, and I think there's such an important. We talk about listening here. There's been a lot of people who have been talking in our workforce for the last five to ten years that have been labelled things like snowflakes, um, and I would proudly call myself a snowflake any day of the week. 
So I, I used to have a dream job at the Guardian newspaper where I was working on all the, all the cool new stuff, 2007, Google, Facebook, everything. And I quit that job for what I thought was my dream job at MNC Saatchi, where I was going to get to work. My free accounts could be Marks and Spencer's, Dyson, um, and, and Barclay Card. And I get there day one, the culture is horrific. It's like, you know, that, um, like that male dominated, like programs like Mad Men have kind of like tried to make it look like they've like made it look good. But if you actually in an environment like that, it's horrific. Um, and I, and I'm, after day one, I knew I needed to leave because of the culture. Um, and the reason I, I, I say, um, and I did, and I started my own business and we grew it to a thousand people and sold it. But the reason I, the reason I take strength from the next generation of people that are entering the workforce is they don't tolerate things like companies that don't have a purpose or um, have a weak culture. They vote with their feet, they leave because they've got the technology to go and start their own business or find another job. And I think we've been hearing this stuff for a long time. I had a, a, a finance director, I was doing a briefing for um, FTSE 100 finance directors on our data. And when it had all finished, I always think the best stuff happens right at the end when everyone's sort of relaxed and then they, are, they ask the real questions. And, the, and, and this person said to me, they said, but, but Matt, yeah, no, I get all that. But when are, when are, this, when are the younger generation just gonna, get, just gonna get work and get down and work hard? And I was like, you're the problem. I didn't say it that bluntly, but these people will work hard. Um, and, and guess what? This person um, had children themselves. So I thought to myself, where is this generation of people learning it from? They're learning it from their parents who are saying, you can be anything, go out there, have a great life, work, like live your dreams. Like, but, but when it's someone else's child who turns up at work and wants something more than just sitting there and doing a boring job, suddenly they're a snowflake. But when their children do it, it's different. So I think there's been a, there's been a real problem with listening where people just want to hear um, what makes them feel comfortable as opposed to listening. And some of these media companies, they've just got terrible attrition rates. People, they can struggle. Technology companies on average, uh, the, the, big, the big 15 technology companies on average, people stay less than two years. Um, but you could people will work for you for longer than two years if you give them a purpose. Um, but if, it's, if your purpose is just to avoid taxes, then maybe, that, maybe people figure that out after a while. So uh, I'll just follow on from Mayor's point, really. I think there's, I think there's, a, there's real hope in the next generation um, coming through that they, that they do want something better. Um, and, I, and I hope that less people um, dis dismiss them as um, snowflakes. And millennials, like, I'm a blooming millennial, I'm almost 40. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. at least get the data like millennials are running businesses right now they're not they're not 18 year olds yeah and coming on to that workplace culture which is definitely a, a huge factor what are some of the things that most employees say at a company in terms of having these very high attrition rates sorry i couldn't hear you ever could you just repeat that can you hear me no yeah, yeah. So coming on to workplace culture, what are some of the reasons that people do stay at companies that make employees stay? Can I say one thing really quickly that's going to make everyone happy? Yeah. <laughs> Which is the number one thing in the data um, that, that, that um, it leads to people staying. I, I was going to say correlate, but I, I want to be proper associated um, is, is appreciation and heartfelt thank you. 
um, which which can be delivered in things like perks and so on, like, but it has to come from an actual thank you. You know, like with the example of the Amazon voucher, that's great, right? Um, but if it comes from a note, if it comes with a note from Rebecca saying, Mayor, do you know what? You really helped me out on that um, project that we were doing together. And it actually, you've actually taken some time to explain why you're giving that 50 pound voucher then it's stuff like that that I just think is so beautiful to hear because it's so human, isn't it? Like it costs you fifty pound to do a voucher, but the real the real cost is taking the time and effort to think about like that individual that you're giving it to. So I'm just going to shut up. I just wanted to share that. Thank you, please. No, I I think um uh, I think you make a really good point. There's there's a um it's public uh, information. There's a brilliant um study that Google did over 10 years called Project Oxygen. I would look it up if you're interested. Um, you know, they found that the thing that drives people to stay um, and be engaged in the work is their line managers, right? Um, and then they defined what a good line manager looks like. And there are various aspects. One is that shows appreciation is, is definitely a big part of that. Um, coming back to kind of this, this process within, in, um, within, uh, COVID, I think there's really two things to think about. One is that um, as that kind of boundary between work and life uh, disappears, a line manager needs to be very, very comfortable with that. And, and the maturity of our line managers um, uh, is something that we're constantly working on. Um, but but I think there's a moment now where we really need to focus. Um, it's really interesting. M many people who are line managers of other people got to those jobs, not because they were good at managing people, right? They were good at doing their jobs. Um, and they'd be there for a certain time. And at a certain point, we kind of, we, we promote them, right? Because we need to give them promotion and we need to pay them more money. Otherwise, they're going to leave or we're worried or we just, we want to thank them, actually, because they've been great for years. Um, and then they're put in a position of managing people. And that's a totally different skill set. Now, multiply that totally different skill set um, with the mix of being in the home and at a remote point. I mean, you're kind of in totally uncharted territory. So even the best managers are having to rethink. I mean, you know, I, I have a, a, a mentor of mine who's, you know, one of the best managers I, I've ever worked with. And they, through COVID, have found it really, really hard because their management style is close-knit team, uh, all around the whiteboard, very engaging. They... They, they engage in it like you know they're they're they're, they're from kind of um, Mediterranean Europe so very kind of physical affectionate etc so much of that lost in this moment of kind of um, uh, through the computer and and I think um, we need to look at how we literally train people to communicate operate work as a manager work as an individual in this uh, environment and there are companies out there that are starting to focus on this um, but uh, I think it's a it's a game changer. And if you couple that with the openness of the world, right? So we spoke about a little bit about the benefit of having like a global talent pool. The negative of having a global talent pool is that you've got a global talent pool. So I can now apply to anyone anywhere, right? Um, just as much as you can find anyone anywhere. Um, and so again, I come back to the fact that this is going to be more and more critical, right? So if you think about like, the role of HR, the role of the line manager, the kind of the the change in the way of working or connection um there's kind of professional personal interpersonal growth that's required on a kind of organizational level and on an individual level and we're kind of just touching the base i mean you know like 
we're touching the tip of the iceberg in in what that means and we'll probably see superstar managers right coming to the fore who probably wouldn't have been before um but that that what it requires what is required of, of a great manager i think fundamentally changes you know matt the kind of people you were talking about before they're going to go very much out of vogue because they won't be able to keep a team together in this new um environment so yeah i i think it's a, it's a really interesting moment one, um, one, one beautiful thing I've, I've seen, Eva, is that um, we, have, um, we have a community called Happiness in Humans. Um, and it's, it's for anyone that wants to positively shape the future of work, right? So I set it up. I wouldn't even care if all my main competitors went in there. It doesn't matter. It's just anyone. That's the rule. If you believe in that, then you can join. If you don't, do one. Um, but what I've, what I've seen um, so much more since COVID is just cross-company collaboration in that group um everything from like um someone just uh, put a message on it earlier um, asking about one of um your competitors <laughs> saying what do you think of this company and i i think because of that emotional deficit bit it's forced people to collaborate more um and i just see it every day um and i and i i'm seeing people reaching out to people around the world like even even people like um starting out their careers message me on linkedin just saying look can i just find out more about how i get into a career and what you do and all that kind of stuff so i think because there's been a deficit in the way that we've been able to socialize that's also resulted in people with with really cool skills that are in the wider hr industry coming together working on stuff that they might not they may not have done before and um, but suddenly um, someone in one area of like finance HR is helping someone in like a tech startup. Um, so I've definitely seen a lot more of that just on that particular subject. Yeah, and the way that we'll be communicating with employees will have to change. And Maya, you spoke or you touched on earlier about what drives innovation within a business. And in part, that was collaboration and also diversity of thought. Is, have I got that right? Um, so really, how are we, how diverse are our workplaces at the minute and how inclusive? I think it depends which sector you look at. Um, it's very sector specific. So for example, hospitality has got great diversity and inclusion. Um, I think in my experience, the companies or the MDs that don't analyze diversity and inclusion have diversity and inclusion because there are no barriers and there's no bias in recruitment they are just welcome if they have the skills and if they have the right mindset um, but there are other organizations that um, probably younger organizations for example uh, digital creative um, that attract um, because digital is quite young as an industry probably attract um, people that are you know predominantly from a younger workforce or graduates coming straight from university so um, and because of the the new skills that are coming out in digital we don't have experienced managers who have those skills so it is an emerging field uh, and so you don't have the full I guess diversity of age and experience in, in certain companies so I think it's really dependent on um, uh, the organization and and the leader but I think definitely those companies that don't analyze and just accept and just bring in people um, based on their their skills and their and their their 
culture fit perhaps also and what they can offer as individuals are the ones that generally have the greatest inclusion and diversity as opposed to those that are measuring it and constantly thinking well we've got you know gap here we need to go and recruit from this you know particular pool etc um yeah I, I, I think it's very diverse it's it's such a completely different kind of setup depending on which company and which industries that you um you know are looking at go ahead uh, all I was going to say, Ava, is that um, Rebecca's spot on. It's, it's sector to sector. The, the really worrying thing, though, is it hasn't improved in 15 years in the UK, um, as an example. So when you look at something like Black Lives Matters now, with a bit more, bit more, it's been going on for longer. The movement, it, and you look and you try and come out of it. It it was inevitable. Um, when you really look at it, that for certain groups of people, that has not improved for 15 years. Um, and I've shared in the, in, in the chat a shocking study. It's me interviewing um, Jeremy Dawson, um, who looks at um, employee engagement in the NHS. And his study concludes that effectively, if you go into a hospital with low um, in, employee engagement, you have more likelihood to be infected or die. That's how serious it is. Um, and I asked him, um, what, uh, what also surprised you when, you when you went through the research and data? Um, and the second one is um, discrimination. Um, I'm trying to get his words exactly right so I don't misrepresent it. But certainly, yeah, discrimination and low levels of equality in the NHS also negatively impact death rates um, and infection rates. Um, so... When we talk about it from a company perspective, we, we would talk about sales, don't we? We go, well, if company A and company B look after their employees in different ways, one might financially perform better. But when you apply that exact same thing into the NHS, you're actually talking about um, people dying more from it, which for me, I, I don't share that to, to make everyone depressed. I'd share it to show you how important it is. And, and when you play it through, it's obvious, isn't it? Because if you've got a group of people who feel discriminated against in your workforce, clearly they're going to be unhappy. Um, and then therefore they're not going to perform better. And if that happens to be that you see in the NHS, it is a matter of life or death. Most of us um, on this call, we don't work in industries where it's a matter of life or death. Um, so I just bring that up to say there is so much work that, that needs to be done. Um, and I'm just, I just encourage everyone to keep the momentum up and just support it in, in all their work where they are because my worry is that we get into September and October and, and it's, this conversation dies down a bit. I just think it's so important and we need to all keep pushing. Yeah, we, we offer training on uh, unconscious bias in recruitment and it completely makes sense. So as we were developing that course, um, it's how we, we think as HR, it's like, you know, it's what we do, et cetera. But working with some clients who are extremely forward-thinking, really creative, really successful, um, we delivered those that, that course to um, a range of line managers, and it was just really interesting. Where you know some some training courses are really engaging and uplifting and fun and teamwork, and you can deliver psychometrics, and you know it's really really quite exciting. Others, perhaps like disciplinaries or redundancy. Training is um, probably a little bit more somber and a little bit dry. 
Um, this one was um, very interactive um, and it was obviously taking place in a room and there's lots of questionnaires and conversations, etc. But at the end of the both sessions, um, um, we did them back to back and then in various other companies as well. It was really interesting how quiet everybody went after. And I think the quietness was on the basis we issued um, questionnaires to online managers. And we said to them, we don't want to see the results. We don't want you to share them. We just want you to listen and look and, and just be honest with yourself and respond to the questions and then fold that and then put it in your notebook and take it home and think about it. And it was just really, really interesting that they then realized actually everybody has deep unconscious biases in most cases. And I think most people think they're different and most people think they haven't. And actually when you're going through a process of really um, kind of, you know, I guess provoking that in a way to say, you know, you need to kind of be honest here. Um, it was a moment of just, just quietness where they were like, wow, okay, there's some work we need to do, but I need to start with myself, you know? Um, and yeah, it's quite, quite game changing um, for everybody to stop and think, so oh, no, 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 I don't I wouldn't do that. Or I wouldn't have, you know, those are decisions I would never make, etc. But actually when you, have that moment with those people and you ask them the questions and their perceptions and they start to kind of go into their unconscious thoughts um it becomes really clear where that lack of diversity has been driven from yeah so very interesting subjects and what are our thoughts on how um the the new working situation through covid is going to affect diversity um, because what we were discussing earlier on this week is that we're also going to have a, a skills gap in terms of the new ways that we're working right now. Um, so how do we see that working in the future? I am, um, uh, on the kind of topic of diversity and inclusion, um, it's hard to say this because people don't necessarily uh, kind of agree with it, but, but um, there are very few kind of institutionally um, uh, um, anti-diversity organizations anymore right in let's say in the west right so if you go to Saudi Arabia there's still floors for women and floors for men um, and you have to dress a certain way as a woman etc etc right so uh, different places in the world have different uh, ways of looking at things but, but you know take the UK um, you know, organizations are rarely racist right people in them maybe so um, and uh, I think that the, the real problem, which, by the way, is, is the same thing as an individual being that way, is, is a question of inclusion, right? So myself as an individual and the other, right? And which is human. Yeah, as you said, Rebecca, like everybody has unconscious bias. Everybody. Um, uh, Obama has a conscious bias. Trump has a conscious bias, right? Everybody's got unconscious bias. Um, the, 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 the thing is, how do you break that down? And um, again, coming back to the COVID discussion, is there an opportunity to change a lot of the things that drove um, inclusion or exclusion um, before? Because if you think about the workplace um, and we think about, I don't know, going for drinks after work, that includes people. It also excludes loads of people. If you think about um, presenteeism, right, as something that is, it includes loads of people and it excludes loads of people. All of those things have been turned on its head. And um, we have 
very different problems with inclusion now, right? Um, people can choose very easily to not be included. They can exclude themselves and maybe they shouldn't uh, uh, be able to do that. Um, it's harder to include people in a kind of real way. Um, there's a lot of pre presentation from people versus kind of discussion. Um, so I think kind of this concept of inclusivity in businesses, do I feel included? Do I feel connected? Do I feel part of the whole? I think that's really hard in, in the kind of COVID world. Um, and I also think it's really hard to get um, that diversity of thought in an inclusive way, right? So how do I get all the different thought processes um, together in a combined way? What, what we're seeing in, in, a, in a large way is a really interesting thing which breaks through, which is technology, right? So um, we're using things like Miro and white, um, virtual whiteboards and um, uh, different ways of formatting meetings. You know, I've, I've I used to kind of when I had a, when I had a team meeting, for example, I would write down six bullet points on a piece of paper and we'd jump in, right? And we'd just see kind of where the agenda flowed. Um, in the world today, that is the opposite of what's helpful, right? Now, the best meeting is hyper-structured. We're jumping into, you know, I click a button, everybody goes into random breakouts, they do a little bit of their own working, then they work in a pair, then they come back to the group to share, right? Um, what's really interesting is that structure that way of working on, on technology enables all the voices to be heard right if you don't do that well really no voices get heard right it's very hard for that to kind of bring the voices back together um and so i think again we're kind of breaking new boundaries on what it means um to be inclusive um and i think we're going to get to very different we're going to become in the norm of what a different way of working is right um, and we'll see people um uh I think we'll move away from people kind of one person speaking and others not right because otherwise you just cannot engage the only way i know that you are engaged in this session is if you speak and um, versus me presenting and so i think it opens up doors for greater levels of inclusion in organizations um which is again exciting but i think there are many organizations which aren't doing it right which is, i think is the watch out um, and Matt, you might have seen that in some of the data that you're looking at, which is, you know, how do people feel in terms of being engaged or included in like a remote setting, I wonder. Yeah, we had to. Um, so I've been working a lot with Shireen Daniels. Um, I hope you guys have seen um, her videos on LinkedIn. She's just been on this, on this nonstop. Um, and she was the first person that allowed me to speak about it because... I always felt like as a white guy, I couldn't talk about things like Black Lives Matter because I thought it'd just come across as like, I would look stupid. But Shireen said to me, um, you're my friend. Um, I'm black, you're white. I'm in HR, you're in technology. Um, and we talk about everything. And I, hear, I see you doing your videos and conferences and talking about everything all the time. And suddenly you're not talking about the one subject that's really important to me. Um, and she talked to me, she explained to me like the white wall of silence. And then I thought, I am being such an idiot here. I'm so worried about looking stupid and someone saying I shouldn't talk about it than actually helping. Um, and that, that was a real breakout moment for me. And the honest, honesty, yeah. companies, this, I didn't really understand systematic racism until the last few months. Um, and I had to even look at my own company and the way that we did stuff. Um, and the way that we appoint people to the board and, and, and actually get in it and look at how we were holding back people from all different types of backgrounds and be really honest. Um, on the, the point on the data, that, on, on Mayor's point, um, none of the DNI stuff works from a technology perspective, in my opinion. Um, and we actually deleted our own module. 
and, and you think it, it costs us hundreds of thousands of pounds to build a module that collects information we just decided you know like people chucking statues in the in in bristol that kind of stuff we just decided our own module on it was a complete disaster and a complete waste of time and we looked at everything out there and, and it helped build out um, a new quality and um, it's called a quality of voice um, that looks at how people feel because what we realized is everything to do with dni um, was focused around counting so it was like counting how many males or how many females you have how many uh, black versus white, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't actually look into how people feel um, about diversity. Do they feel like they belong in the organization? Because once you do that, you collect information about how you can improve it. If you're just counting, you're just then in, in a board meeting going, well, we've got a problem here. We've um, got 10% women and 90%. There's no information to help you. Um, and we've only launched it, relaunched it with about 10 companies now. But Sometimes you've just got to be brutal on yourself and go, do you know what? We've got some systematic problems in the happiness index that we have to just admit and start to fix. Um, otherwise, you get stuck up your own bum um, and never actually fix some stuff. So it's been a real awakening for me, this whole thing. And, I, and I, that's why I keep encouraging people to do it in their own companies is be really, um, like Rebecca was saying about um, the biases, just you have to go away and reflect and be really honest with yourself. Mm. Yeah, I think we've, what we've seen with our clients as well is that initial March crisis and that that kind of doom time and the panic and the the courage of those teams that put their hands up and said actually I'm going in I'm going to sort this and I'm going to make the business continue and I'm going to carry on working versus those um, you know if we're being completely honest who were pushing for furlough and wanted that long sort of month in the sun and back garden and, you know, extended time off. And I think there seems to be emerging kind of a, two different camps of those people that were on the sort of business front line, if you like, who were giving everything and haven't had time off and haven't had the bank holidays and have had the stresses and have had to put contingencies, contingencies in place and have had to put COVID secure workplaces in place really quickly and work with the government guidelines yet still keep the business profitable and keep things going and keep everybody safe and manage all the you know the line managers and manage all the employees and health and well-being issues and everything um, versus those that um, you know, for whatever reason weren't chosen to be part of that and there are lots of different reasons that we probably you know we won't go into today but um i think there's there's definitely different feelings i think for those two sets of employees now that i can see that are coming through from from leaders and not negative for any of those that are still on furlough or were on furlough for a long time and couldn't contribute because that's just how it landed you know that's just how it is but i think a real um, sense of um, um, kind of pride and just almost like adoration for the teams that went in who just worked incredibly hard and still are um, and probably kept their businesses going and kept them afloat so there was you know definitely with what we're seeing is there are core teams that have saved the day and will continue with that hero status or heroine status forever because, you know, my goodness, what, how hard have they had to work to keep things going? 
and 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 for us working from home and carrying on from working from home yes it's all been ext extremely busy but we are quite lucky we're in a place where we don't have to go into a warehouse we don't have to kind of go and you know kind of understand how the health and safety comes together and um you know is the company going to be liable if you know somebody doesn't sanitize their hands and how does that work and dealing with whistleblowing scenarios and dealing with anxiety of people not wanting to come because they haven't got a car and they need to use public transport so you know go figure how that works you know the amount of challenges these people have had who are just absolutely amazing you know they haven't had the luxury of being in the laptop in the back garden or you know completely growing their new you know a new vegetable patch or kind of you know doing all the things that in you know, lots of people have been able to do with that time off you know um and 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 they will they will forever i think be remembered for the incredible contribution they've made and i think th rebecca i do think there's a really interesting decision there for companies on on that recognition um and how serious they take it so well, the biggest thing that I learned was around transparency. So when COVID hit, 70% of our customers stopped paying us overnight, um, which is, it's just game. It's, it's just, it's company ending for us in that scenario. Um, and um, we were, we probably had about four weeks of money left at that point when that happens, because that is, that was so drastic for us. They didn't cancel their contracts. They just said, our customers are paying us, so we can't pay you. It was like a mini credit crunch. Um, so what we did is we just got the spreadsheets. We, we basically called an all company meeting and we shared with everyone the finances and said, look, this is where we are. Um, this is the current situation. Um, and this is what some people can do. So, um, I, uh, my cash flow situation, I could work for four months without getting paid. That was my runway. Um, and, and so on. And, so, and then a few people said that, and then we said, look, this is where we are. If there's anything you can do, let us know. Um, and everyone went away um, and things like we, I've got a guy in Ashford. Um, this is how expensive trains are. It costs him 500 pounds to get a train from Ashford to London a month. So he was like, look, I can have a 500 pound pay cut and so on and so on and so on. By the time everyone had chipped in, um, we didn't have to do anything. We managed to cut the costs so dramatically um, that we were breaking even. And, um, and the reason I'm the reason I'm telling this story on Rebecca's point is I've enshrined that now that that every single employee should be getting shares above and beyond. We were already going to do an employee scheme, but sometimes they're a bit like, I don't know, they're sort of done for marketing. I, I, I'm a bit cynical. Sometimes it's like, oh, you get a 0.0001% of the company or whatever. Um, and I change companies now because my business would not be still here now if it wasn't for the employees. So I believe they acted like owners. So I believe they should now get shares for that. Um, and that's what we're going through. But I do challenge other business owners um, to go from gratitude, which we, as we said earlier, is good for retention, but to actually put their money where their mouth is because we haven't talked about B Corps um, at the moment, but I think there's some incredibly good stuff going on in B Corps at the moment. And I think there's massive value in, in, in employees owning companies. Um, so I just, I was just building on Rebecca's point there. I just, I, I want to see over the next few months what, how people repay that. 
Thanks so much, Matt. Um, so we're coming up to roughly time now, so I want to make sure I open up to all of our attendees um, who might have questions or just any comments on anything we've discussed or anything that you found particularly useful. It would be great to hear from you. Um, so I'm just on the Q&A section of the chat, so feel free to just use the chat uh, to post any of your questions um, just before we round off. So we'll have time to take um, a few questions if there are any. Perhaps in the meantime, while we round off, um, just thank you so much to our speakers. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Matt. And thanks to Staff Treats for hosting um, the webinar. As we said, if you have any further follow-up questions, um, feel free to email the team. Um, but it would be great if we could just round off. Obviously, we've discussed a lot of the challenges um, that businesses have had to face, and we've come out of the initial, initial panic phase. Um, so perhaps if you have a piece of advice um, to any of the businesses um, or through your experiences that you're working with for how to deal with this next phase, obviously it's very unpredictable, but there are certain opportunities for you know, growth and improvement in what we're doing. So it would be great to hear just a, a closing uh, sentence from, from each of you. Keep an open mind um, because our clients have fell into three camps, those that have thrived um, through what they do and they just were in the right place at the right time, but they also um, kind of really pivoted to the maximum. Um, those businesses that were um, probably had the core team and the rest kind of furloughed and they were trying to kind of look at different opportunities and those that were not able to be creative and think of any other different ways or routes to market um, that are definitely going to struggle going forwards and i think creativity is the heart is at the heart of this coming out of this um, um, ideas and this isn't necessarily the board or the managers coming together this is the employees you know coming up with those ideas um, so definitely try and bring in creativity and ideas and um, thoughts and, and as part of that, listen, you know, listen to your workforce, uh, listen to what ideas they have uh, got as well. And, and definitely the first, uh, the forefront of going forwards, you know, post COVID and, you know, kind of in always, you know, always is actually really kind of listen and communicate with your staff. Um, and trying to get try and get to the heart of what motivates them you know we spoke about this um, um, a few days ago in that you know there isn't a one thing you can deliver for one business that will motivate everybody and we have such diversity now we have so many different demographics to consider a different age groups and different um, desires I think COVID has um, changed you know people's um, kind of ikigai if you like the sweet spot of what they want to do. I think there was a, a survey this week where 40% of um, um, people working in professional services are considering a career change um, through this pandemic. And just 
the impact of how that's made them feel and reconsider and, and revisit what they want in, in life and what's important to them. And that's fantastic because the more people we get working towards what they feel they should be doing when they're on this planet is the best thing because we have better, happier kind of environments. You know, it's not necessarily not talking about the workplace because it goes beyond work. This is about people in life generally being happy. So I think the, the closer people can get to really finding out, being self-aware about what makes them happy and employers encouraging that. Um, some great businesses I used to work for saw themselves as uh, like a, almost like a vehicle to their career. And there were conversations around, yes, you're here now, but actually if you want to be somewhere else in five years time or three years time, let's talk about that and let's make that happen for you. You know, we're not going to chain you to, to your office. You know, you're not here forever and we get that, but let's try and get the best out of you whilst you're here. Have a great time doing it. Feel really satisfied and, um, um, you know, encouraged with what you've delivered for us, but then go on to do what you're meant to be doing in your life, you know? So I think, COVID as a whole, kind of bring that human back into those conversations and stop putting people in boxes. Thanks so much, Rebecca. And yeah, just uh, Maya just jumping off there, but I will share uh, his line of advice is Carpe Diem, and with every problem comes an opportunity. Um, and Matt, if you'd like to share. Um, I, I, I mean, Rebecca summed it up perfectly, I thought. Um, so I'm just going to be really short, which is going to quote Bill and Ted. Um, which is uh, be excellent to each other. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time, guys. And thank you so much for everyone who attended and Staff Treats for hosting this webinar. We're keen to hear any of your feedback and any questions. And have a wonderful rest of the day, evening. And we hope to hear you. everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.